I remember my first time working on setting up a firewall. It was Checkpoint Firewall 1. And I thought, this is just fascinating that I, as a single human, have so much control, so much power in my hand over what traffic goes through, <laughs> what, what works and what doesn't work. And also it made me realize how brittle that gate can be, where if I make a mistake, things will just break. Greetings, listeners, and welcome to Seeding AppSec, the podcast where we discuss the latest trends in application security and talk shop with AppSec leaders and practitioners from around the globe. Seeding AppSec is brought to you by Arnica, a leading application security solution changing how AppSec teams approach risk identification and mitigation. Arnica is shifting the AppSec paradigm with real-time pipelineless risk identification and Git posture management, allowing teams to protect their developers, their code, and their products while maintaining development velocity. Check out arnica.io to learn more. In the meantime, sit back and get ready for another enlightening journey into the world of application security. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Seeding AppSec. I'm here with my co-host, Nir Waldman, uh, CEO of Arnica, and our guest today, who I could not be more excited to talk with about application security and his perspective, Lenny Zeltzer. Lenny, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us. Oh, thanks for the invitation. It's great to be here. Hi, everybody. We are going to dive right in. And I think that where I'd love to start, Lenny, is you have established such a voice in the security space. You've clearly built that that voice over time. I'd love to hear a bit of a of your story of how you ended up in security in the first place and what that path looked like for you over time. I think I ended up in security because I couldn't quite decide what aspect of IT I liked. Anywhere I looked, I was mesmerized, fascinated, interested in. So I did a bit of system administration on Linux, then on Windows, then a bit of networking. I got into software development at some point. Anybody remembers Enterprise Java Beans many, many years ago? It, it was all fascinating and interesting. Intellectual was challenging. And then at some point, I realized that security exists at the intersection of all of those disciplines. And so I started to do a bit of firewall management and intrusion detection and then system hardening. And it just went on from there. So I think to this day, security is that discipline within IT where so many people's interests intersect. And yeah, that's one of the reasons why I'm still with it. So I'll ask a follow-up question there, which is, now you're leading security teams, you're a CISO at a, a security company, which we're going to get into momentarily. But I'm curious, was there a, a point in your life as a practitioner that, you, that was your favorite? Like what chapter of your practitioner journey was your favorite chapter? I think it's very easy as, as humans to romanticize our memories of events long gone. Uh, there's some research that uh, shows that people tend to forget a lot of their negative experiences and remember positive aspects of certain events. So I suppose now when I think back at my career, I do think with a wistful bliss about kind of the early days where everything was so novel. In particular, I remember my first time working on setting up a firewall. It was Checkpoint Firewall 1. And I thought, this is just fascinating that I, as a single human, have so much control, so much power in my hand over what traffic goes through, <laughs> what, what works and what doesn't work. And also it made me realize how brittle that 
gate can be, where if I make a mistake, things will just break and people will be quite happy with me. In those days, I also was doing network intrusion detection, and that was fascinating to me because I learned how, how to notice anomalies, which I think is a skill that stays with us, whether we work on technological challenges or whether we just interact with humans or, or do uh, business-related work, like noticing when something stands out, when something doesn't quite feel right, and learning how to investigate it, uh, maybe ask questions about it. So anyway, right now I'm describing the early chapter in my professional career, and that was, of course, fascinating. But then a bit later on, a very interesting part of my professional life was when I switched from being a, hmm, a security consultant. I was doing penetration testing and advisory services at some point, and I switched into being a product manager, so building security products and services. And that was incredible because it's just a very different context, very different expectations, very different dynamics and a different thought process. So that was a lot of fun. I still stayed within the security industry because the products and services that I was building were designed to help our customers address security challenges. Uh, but that was novel. And especially what was rewarding about that part of my uh, journey was that up until that point, I've only worked in an enterprise setting, either doing security work directly for a large enterprise or advising large enterprise customers. But my first job in building security products and services was in building a managed security service for tiny restaurants. <laughs> I think Nir knows the experience that I'm talking about because yeah. we were at the same company at that time. But the, my challenge was specifically, how do you build uh, a set of security services that are affordable to a mom and pop pizza shop. Like their profit margins are so low. Their understanding of technology is not very advanced. Their willingness to pay for security is quite low as well, but they need help. And how do you do something, build something for them that's inexpensive to offer and thus affordable to buy? That, that was a fun challenge. I must ask, because when we met, and I worked with a few security product managers in the past, when we met, the first thing that I did, I just went to Google and said, oh, let me just find who's that guy, maybe on LinkedIn, maybe on Twitter, just figure out like, what is the same language that we can talk together? And apparently it found many pages about you. It was blog posts and research on reverse engineering malwares and things like that. And obviously since then, the, the blog has evolved, <laughs> obviously, and you're trained uh, a lot of people on, on malware analysis. And I wonder, what caused you doing both the product management, which is more business side, as well as the technical stuff that, that you're doing? And it's, it's a very low level felt analysis. Oh, yeah. I, I guess it, it goes back to my inability to pick an area and not get bored of it after a while. But at some point, I became interested in the business aspect of security. And getting into product management gave me an opportunity to see what's it like to make decisions that are not purely influenced by the need to protect by industry best practices for locking down systems, but that were influenced by just the reality of business dynamics, costs, profits, customer needs. And I thought that because I used to run 
a security program or had hands-on technical expertise, I would be able to take that and translate that into meaningful security products. But also at that point in my life, I had gotten an MBA degree and I haven't really had a chance to apply that skill set, whatever business skills or interests I developed when pursuing an MBA. So this was a chance to try to remember some of the things that I learned in grad school, apply them, and also see the world of security from a different perspective and keep things fresh and interesting. Awesome. I have a deep love for the managed security services space, so I'm glad to hear that was part of your origin story as well. Um, yeah, and I think we could probably do a whole nother podcast just on managed services and the, the wild world of MSP, MSSPs. I think you've very helpfully transitioned us into the, the, the meaty focus of the conversation we're having today. And so I want to ask you, you, there's a difference between being a product manager for a security product and then actually securing a product. What are some of the differences that you've noticed in your experience doing both? Oh boy. Yeah, very different. And uh, allow me to take a, a brief step back before I address this question. And by the way, I'll add in there, Lenny, please also feel free to highlight any similarities that you feel like are, are helpful to point yeah. out as well. Uh, I found for me, and perhaps you'll agree for many other people, that I'm very influenced by uh, my objectives. I guess it's, it's very, a very abstract thing to say, but we all have jobs. If we do have jobs or we're pursuing jobs, perhaps in some cases, but my point is that every job, uh, there's something that you're asked to achieve. Yeah, you, you have a set of objectives, a set of metrics by which you're being measured, uh, a set of goals that you need to accomplish to stay employed or to achieve a bonus or to be praised for the performance uh, that you have at your work. I, I found that I'm not alone in being motivated by the, the clear objectives that I have. Yeah, Many of us are that way as well. And so if my objectives are, allow us to respond to detect more quickly a security incident, allow us to respond more quickly to an incident, allow us to have a clean record of health when the vulnerability assessment is performed. I'm talking about security-focused objectives. You know what? Just tell me what you want me to focus on, and I'll apply my energy to succeed at meeting those objectives. And as a product manager, you have just a very different set of objectives. What does that mean? It means that you're being measured based on, let's say, your ability to anticipate customer needs in the set of features that you include in your product, or you're being measured based on your ability to deliver a set of commitments so that your product hits a certain date for when it needs to be available to customers, or you're being measured based on how much revenue your product contributes to the company's overall business. Very different set of objectives, but there's only a limited amount of time that you have to pursue your objectives at your work. And what that means is that inevitably, There'll be certain objectives where most of your energy is focused on and others that you might want to pursue because you think they're also important, but they're less important. You won't devote as much time to them. And why did I, did I bring that up? Because when I became a product manager, having been beforehand a security-focused technical pr practitioner, my worldview cha had changed and I was focused more on you know, delivering product functionality, uh, supporting the, the company's ability to earn revenue and be profitable. 
That's where I focused. But because I was a security person, I still was mindful of the need to build a product securely, but it was secondary to my need to achieve other business objectives for which the company has hired me. And, and, and it's been that way throughout the various product management jobs that I have had. And then I went back into focusing on the internal security program. And yet again, my objectives have changed. Right now, I'm the CISO at Axonius, where I am responsible for overseeing and continuing to mature our security program. And I'm measured on that growth, that ongoing maturity of the security program, on, on uh, my ability to contribute towards earning our customers' trust. That's very different from building a product. Again, different sets of objectives, different mindset. And thus, and thus uh, right now, of course, uh, as the CISO, I, I do want us to have a product that our customers need. I want us to have a product that helps the company grow, but that's not my primary responsibility. I'm supposed to be focused on my security program. That's where all of my time goes. And that's where, and that's the bias that I bring into every conversation. Yeah, we're all biased, I think, by our incentives, by our objectives, and my biases change based on the role that I play within the company. So maybe I'll ask a follow-up question. I'll tell you, for example, what we do. We run Arnica on Arnica, but we also develop Arnica, right? And many of the features that we developed actually came from the pain that our developers had with certain missing functionality for them. And I wonder if you see that crossroad somewhere between securing a product versus providing a secure product in your, in your current set. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a very good point that if your company makes a product that you yourself can benefit from, and those of us who are working for security or IT vendors uh, probably uh, fall into that category, then of course you should be using your own product. And you should be providing feedback to the product team regarding what works, what doesn't work, any opportunities for improvement. And of course, that's what we do. Yeah, the security team uh, that I oversee uses our products and provides feedback to our product team. Now, we still need to focus on our primary objective, which is securing our environment, earning customers trust. But we do provide what I think is a unique perspective to the people who oversee our product roadmap. And that perspective is, it's unfiltered. Yeah, all product managers want feedback from their customers, but in many cases, a customer what might be a bit guarded in, in providing that feedback, maybe doesn't wanna share certain very confidential information with the vendor. But when you're part of the same company, if you have a strong relationship between the teams, then you can really provide immediate unfiltered feedback that the product team can then incorporate into their understanding of what features work, what doesn't work, what else is needed in the product, for example. But at the same time, I worry sometimes that my ability to empathize with product managers might cause me to hold back some of the feedback. Uh, and by here, here's what I mean. Uh, when I was in product management, I would get feedback from customers all the time, but not all of that feedback I decided to act upon. Okay, everybody's got an opinion for what the product should be, the direction with which it should be heading. But ultimately, as the product manager, I'm responsible for deciding where should the product be heading and what's good for us, because we can't implement all features, certain things we need to deprioritize. 
And, uh, and so now as the user of our own product, I have a ton of features that I think are important for me and my team's uh, scenarios. And I want us to share that feedback with our product team, but at the same time, I need to remind myself that it's okay if they don't act on all of my feedback uh, because they know the direct product, their objectives are to oversee the road. And, and sometimes it's a little bit painful to know that not all of my feedback will be acted upon, but I have to remind myself that it's okay. Before we went live, we talked a bit about EQ and the value of EQ as a security practitioner and security leader. I imagine that position that you just described where you are being engaged and approached as a security expert and asked, being asked for feedback on the product. And some of that feedback is being taken and implemented and other feedback is being deemed not as private, let's say. That EQ, social awareness to be able to say, I, I'm being asked to step outside of my primary role as a CISO in this engagement of giving feedback on product. And now I just need to go back and go back to my primary focus. So I guess it's like not to... really a question, but uh, <laughs> no, but like, I actually, I do have something, a follow-up question on that because it's, so you mentioned that you have goals for every type of role. So if you're doing, let's say a CISO or AppSec or anything in the, in the corporate security side, you have one set of goals. And if you have product management hat, um, you obviously have other set of goals. Do you think, or do you al already measure anything that you contributed to the product team, although it's not part of your goals, but I wonder if you use it anywhere as a metric, whether you are measured for that or not. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Certain things that we're working on are hard to measure. Yeah, I think oftentimes security leaders talk about how do you measure the things that are important to you? Because if you don't measure it, then it's hard to see if uh, the work is being done correctly. It's hard to take credit for that work or recognize that something must be done because you're not progressing in the right way. So I, I wish I could say that I'm able to measure everything that my teams are working on, but that would be not genuine. Like some of the work that we're doing, it's hard to measure. And I have not yet for myself found a great way to measure with numbers exactly the impact that our application security team has on the product. Something for us to think about and, and improve on perhaps. But certainly at a very high level, it's easy to understand the company's objectives. Like why does your company exist? What is it looking to achieve in a given year? And everything that every team does in the company should somehow be aligned to those objectives. We're a relatively young, uh, fast-growing tech company. And not surprisingly, our objectives include growth, meeting certain revenue targets, uh, having uh, customers be happy with our product, that kind of stuff. And so when I look at every work that my teams are doing related to security engineering, operational security, application security, as well as IT, like at some point, we can see how the work that we're doing enabling those uh, enables those high-level objectives. But I think near what you're talking about is, is being a little bit more specific, tied to understanding the product team's objectives and then aligning your efforts to those. So the extent to which we're, we're able to do this, number one, we got to remind ourselves that we cannot stand on the way. 
Yeah. I mentioned the sense of power that I got earlier, early in my career when I was responsible for the firewall management. And if I wanted to, I could stand on the way of the product working, turn off the port. Nobody can access the website anymore. Yeah. You know, well, that's exactly the wrong way to think about security right now. We cannot be blocking. We need to position our work as enabling <coughs> success. So certainly we want to allow our software engineers to do their work well, quickly, expertly, because what's expected of them is to deliver on the product roadmap, give our customers the capabilities that they need, continue to grow in the products and capabilities. So number one is we can't stand on the way, but how do you measure that? Like this month we did not block anyone from doing their work. I don't know, that's a slightly weird thing to measure, but you could. Yeah, you could. If your application security program is such that certain pull requests are blocked from being incorporated into the code base until the AppSec person reviews it, I guess you could measure how quickly those reviews occur and how much you slow down the company. But that's a very bad negative way of positioning your role, right? But we'd never be saying, let's see to what extent we don't slow others down. Like you want to position things positively, yeah. see how we've helped the company accelerate. So Lenny, yeah. I, if I can just jump in here, you mentioned something earlier where when you stepped into a product management role, you already had a background of security. And so you were able to approach that with a mindset of, okay, I have a different set of incentives. I have a different set of priorities, but I have a mindset of building products securely. And so I'm curious, does the answer maybe lie in that mentality that you were able to bring to the role naturally, but maybe either AppSec teams or AppSec products can help provide product managers with the mindset of, okay, we're building products securely. I don't know for certain. I, I hope that my former product management expertise gives me some street cred with other product managers that I talk to. Maybe, I don't know, only they can say whether that's true or not, but I hope that at least when I'm engaging them in a, in a discussion, they understand that I'm not just talking about this because I'm concerned about our internal security as the CISO. Hopefully they understand that what I'm bringing up it is it, I, I accounted for my understanding of their role as well. It goes back to that to having the, I guess, the, uh, uh, EQ uh, component of discussions. So, like, I believe I can have a more meaningful discussion because it's easier for me to see the other side's perspective. And, and of course, I want to have products that are built, and I understand the need for us to give customers what they want, but I also have the need to make sure that those products are built in a way that's defensible, that's secure, and that we can look our customers in the eye and say, we've done what we should have done to uh, make it hard for the product to be compromised, for example. So, and so yeah, I think that's why um, we put effort into building our application security practices so that they're not blocking unless something, you know, unless we detected uh, something uh, very severe. And we put effort into making sure that if such detections occur, they occur as early in the development process as possible so that whatever pause or, or, or whatever friction we introduce is as, as inexpensive as possible, right? In, in most cases, the sooner you detect 
an issue of the, the least expensive, the least costly it is to address it. So, so we're, we're thinking about how do we enable our business? How do we have an amazing product that, that grows, uh, that has new capabilities? And we're thinking about how do we provide feedback? How do we insert ourselves in the process in a way that's uh, as non-friction as possible? One of the, maybe it's not a question, but one of the things that uh, at least I noticed uh, when I also shifted hats between different types of roles, you know, I had AppSec, I, I had some business piece of the role in the last company that also had AppSec at some point. In each one of those roles, on one hand, I, I said, yeah, I care about security and I care about maybe shifting left as much as possible and maybe being good with developers. And there's a lot of buzz around that. When you're in AppSec, you're saying, oh, let's integrate into pipelines and back to for our own history or mutual history. We really try to do a lot of things at scale as much as possible. But as you mentioned, if you can notify developers on the left side, then you have certain things that you need to think about, not only from a, like a practitioner standpoint as what is like good to block, which is an example that you mentioned, maybe blocking a, a pull request merge because it has two severe issues. But actually, the main challenge that I had to tackle is how do I communicate well with developers that not only shifts the effort left, but also make sure that the developers can trust the program that you run. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that this is one of the, the, the biggest challenges. You can talk with customers and customers, as you mentioned, will give you some good feedback, some maybe filtered feedback. Developers will just give it straight away. Yeah. I'd love to just ignore you and don't give you anything, which is another form of feedback. But funny thing, we, we have one of our customers, actually now it's few, initially created a small Slack Connect channel with us. And then they started adding more and more people to that Slack channel, up to the point where they had so many engineering people in that channel. And they started posting questions about how do we do this? How do we do that in GitHub? And we just would like Git. And that's what we tend to be expertise on, would tend to be experts on. And we just started answering those questions about how do you manage this and how do you manage other piece of the functionality? And at some point, our sponsor said, hey, this is not GitHub support. It's a separate channel. But that created, and that's product management hat now, that created a ton of features for us, ton of improvements, how to communicate with developers. Yeah. How not to communicate to developers. <laughs> yeah, that, that's such amazing feedback. And you only get it when you establish a very strong relationship with your customer, where they feel open to just bring those things up and to product management. I think that's just gold. Yeah, as you said, just hear what problems they have that your product doesn't address and decide maybe you should address it. Yeah. Or maybe not always. Lenny, if I'm not mistaken, before you went into product management in security, you, I believe with Near, were working in the world of fintech. And I, I'm curious if you found a different focus when it comes to security from within a security company, as opposed to other regulated industries like fintech, health tech, for example, where you do think of those organizations as being very security minded, but was it different being in mm. a security? Yeah, I think uh, the the, uh, the part of my experience that you're referring to was when I was working with a lot of uh, restaurants. And so 
payment processing, credit card payments was certainly a, a significant component of that ecosystem. And what was driving my challenges there was how do we help our customers improve security, demonstrate PCI compliance that at the time, that was the thing that everybody was worried about. And in the world of PCI, I found things were relatively straightforward because say what you want about PCI DSS compliance. Some people say it's not good enough. Some people say it's too much. At least it's prescriptive. More or less, it tells you what you need to have. So me as a product manager, when I was thinking what capabilities to add to my set of products, I, I knew where my requirements would come from. Primarily, it was from interpretation of PCI DSS. And that, that, that was nice. When Right now, I'm not in a regulated world. Yeah, we're a tech company. And so sometimes I wish somebody would just give me a checklist and say, this is what you need to do when you build a security program that will need to earn your customer's trust. I don't have it. But in a way, that's also liberating because that means a lot of flexibility, a lot of room for interpretation, a lot of room for creativity, perhaps. So in my world today, yeah, I'm not a product manager now, as we discussed, but you can think of building and maturing a security program as, in a way, being a product manager is just that your product is the security program. And therefore, you need to understand your stakeholders, internal and external ones, and you need to understand your requirements. And because we are not in a regulated industry, uh, most of my requirements come from our customers, also much like the requirements for traditional product managers would probably come from customers as well as your understanding of the trajectory in which the industry is going. So when deciding the rate at which the security program should mature, what capabilities should we have? How should we prioritize our efforts in securing, securing the organization? There's always trade-offs, just like with any product management decisions. There's always a need to do something now and delay something later because you're dealing with scarce resources you can devote to building the security program. So I both try to understand what's generally expected of security programs in my industry, but also just the requirements for my customers are really helpful. Oftentimes these requirements come in the form of much and often dreaded security questionnaires. Uh, often those requirements come in the form of uh, addendums to our contracts. And as much as I don't like questionnaires or contracts, it is helpful to just understand what the customers really expect. And, and, and I can use that to decide how to prioritize my team's efforts, but also I can use customers' requirements as a way, it's, it's also a lever that I can use with other teams within our company, right? Because security responsibilities, for the most part, do not lie with the security team. They lie with internal stakeholders that conduct their day-to-day -day work and also need to think about requirements guardrails related to security. And sometimes when they maybe wouldn't otherwise care, I say, but you should care in part because we have a contract that says we need this. Ah, then the conversation is a bit easier to have. I think the next thing I, I wanted to ask you about, Lenny, was if you could just share, what are some of the unique challenges that come with building a security practice from within a security company? I think we've pointed to some of the contrasts from your previous experience, but that's something I'm particularly interested in. And in particular, how do you collaborate with engineers that, that might view themselves as security experts, but because they work in a security company? 
Yeah, I think uh, you're right in that building a security program for a company that makes security solutions, it has its own opportunities and its own challenges. The opportunities perhaps lie in the fact that if you're building a security product, uh, much like Arnica does, right? you have a lot of security-related uh, uh, value propositions for your customers. If you're building a security product, your customers expect, I think, more from your security than they would if you were another vendor that could claim in ignorance. Like it's harder to say, I didn't know I needed to, I don't know, enforce two-factor authentication, for example, if you're building a security product. Because then you lose legitimacy in the eyes of your prospects. If you don't know how to manage your own security, then how can you help us manage ours with your solutions? So that higher expectation for a security program, it does apply some pressure and was one of the reasons why I started to go gray earlier in life. But it also gives me a lever I can use when I work with my internal stakeholders to get their buy-in and as a way of justifying funding for the security problem. So that's good, I think. Some of the challenges, yeah, you pointed out an, an interesting dynamic that can happen when internal stakeholders see themselves as also security experts. We do have a lot of members of our engineering team. They really have real-world security experience you know, before they became engineers. Maybe they had other actual security work, like doing penetration testing and such. And so on the one hand, that can be helpful because when you talk to them about certain terminology, I don't know, cross-site scripting, they know what you're talking about. On the other hand, their um, objectives are now different. Yeah, we talked about that earlier in the conversation. Just because there is, they have security expertise doesn't mean that they will be able to act on it right now because maybe they're under pressure to deliver a certain um, functionality by the end of the week because there's an important customer that expects it. And guess what? When they're under that pressure, they prioritize only one thing, and that is time to deliver the functionality. What that means is that they will probably deprioritize certain security considerations unless they just get them inherently as part of the pro pro platform within which they're operating. And so I need to be mindful of that. And sometimes just because that's reality, yeah, we have to prioritize. We are driven by our objectives and are subject to our biases. And so I just need to remember that just because I'm talking to someone who has security expertise doesn't mean that they will be able to apply it even if they wanted to. And so that I need to take into consideration when, when discussing uh, what I think is important to consider and what I decide maybe is okay to delay because I also see there perspective and we need to build code quickly. So maybe I'll, I'll follow up on that. So when you, every engineer has a priority, obviously, and uh, you know, any possible scanner, network scanner, code scanner, any scanner can provide you a long list of criticals, right? And, and at the end of the day, as you mentioned, developers may not know which critical is more important than the other. Maybe one critical is a backlog item that exists or has been there for a few years, but what if it's a new critical that the developer just introduced? Do you see different behavior with, hey, this is new before you merge the code versus that's a backlog item that I may need to track an SLA for it? Uh, I think you're right in that you need to take into account context just because 
a vulnerability was detected in the scanner considers it critical according to some criteria. First of all, it doesn't mean that you should treat it as a critical risk. Uh, we can actually draw a distinction between a vulnerability and risk because there certainly is one. And so uh, not all critical vulnerabilities should be treated with the same sense of urgency because you always need to triage and prioritize. So you need to add additional context to see, well, where is the risk higher? And if there's a critical vulnerability in some system that's, I don't know, not internet accessible, performs work on data that's not as sensitive, and maybe you've even already known about it and decided to not prioritize it, well, that's, of course, a lot less urgent than something brand new that happens to, I don't know, be accessible from the internet, exploitable from the internet. Yeah, you got to act on it right away. I think that's why application security teams need to be so careful when they bring vulnerabilities to developers because developers don't have the expertise often or the context to prioritize. And so they might look to the security team to say, so listen, I don't know, is this a big deal or, or can I deal with this later? And we as security teams need to be really careful not to flag everything as urgent because if everything is urgent, then nothing is urgent. <laughs> What's truly important? And we need to take into consideration both the, the vulnerability score as well as the broader context to prioritize it as a risk. That makes complete sense. There's also a thought process about maybe where it's being introduced, right? So maybe it's an asset that is exposed to the internet. Uh, maybe this asset processes sensitive data, but even then you may have like half of the company working on something like that. Um, and therefore, um, you can um, also ask at which point that vulnerability was introduced. If it was introduced maybe in a feature branch that developer, you know, put the vulnerability into this, you can say, I just want to prevent introducing this vulnerability to my Perfect. production environment, while whatever you have in production, obviously that is also dynamic. I uh, see so, what you so mean. That brings the question of where do I want to handle the things that already deployed in production? So there's like that piece of balance between where it is in the development lifecycle as well. Uh, I see. What, yeah, this goes back to the earlier part of our conversation where we talked about how the sooner you detect something, the less costly it is for you to inter intervene. So what you're saying is that, yeah, if you are able to catch a new capability that's not even incorporated into the code branch and stop it that early, the developer is much more likely to react positively and quickly and to actually uh, act on the information rather than saying, sorry, it's too late. It's already in the main code branch. It's already deployed in production now. It's so much more disruptive to try to patch that bug, close that vulnerability. The, the main difference, like the, the way that I see that, especially you know, with either customers or even our engineering team, when we have a very low threshold of risk, meaning we care about everything. And, and sometimes, let's say it's a low risk, no one will want to handle that right now, given the timelines and, and priority, then the moment that it becomes, create a ticket for me to handle it, it's too late. Obviously, when it's in a ticket, it is prioritized. But how do you make that impact to even avoid creating the ticket? That is at least one of the questions that I'm trying to answer every day. 
That's a you know? very interesting uh, measuring stick. Can you detect something as early as possible before you have to create a ticket, right? Because if you don't have to create a ticket, that means you caught it so early that the change really is not at all disruptive because it doesn't need to be change controlled anymore. Oh, that's a great way to think of it. Yeah, I like it. Awesome. I think with that, we are going to transition into our lightning round, Lenny. We've got a couple questions for you, quick, short answers, and here we go. So if you were the leader of an anonymous hacker group, what would your hacker group be called? Oh, gosh. I'm having a hard time answering that one quickly because I probably wouldn't be such a, a, a leader of a hacker. I guess I'd call it pen testers or us because it would be a pen testing outfit. <laughs> Boring, love, love it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, pen just imagine how about that? Can be a pen testing pilot? Pen testing pilot. <laughs> I just had the logo of Toys R Us with pen testing R Us in as the. the <laughs> <laughs> I might sketch that up for you and send it to you after we after we drop off the call. Excellent. Okay, if you drink coffee, how do you take your coffee? I like uh, Cortado, so roughly two-thirds of it is espresso and one-third milk. Is that the right way to do That has been actually my recent drink mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Yeah. But I do it on ice, which I right. think is really nice. What advice would you give a young aspiring security professional? Just feed into your curiosity. If there's something that you're really curious about, go after that, because that means it'll be easier for you to find the energy to explore whatever aspect of IT, software development, uh, cybersecurity interests you. Understand what you're curious about and feed that curiosity. Awesome. And finally, you get one free plug. It can be a book, a, a movie you've watched recently, a product you've used, a peanut butter brand. Anything you want. Well, I would just invite people to check out my blog. If you're interested about my perspective on the world of security, check it out at zeltzer.com. Plus one. Big time plus one for that. Yeah. All right. I guess that's plus two. <laughs> but also, I, I also uh, work at Exonius. So if you don't know what we do, check it out as well. Get the plug. Perfect. Fair enough. <laughs> Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Lenny, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a really enlightening discussion. And yeah, thank you for spending so many valuable time. Glad to be here. That wraps up this edition of Seeding AppSec. Find and follow the podcast for more application security insights by subscribing on Spotify, Amazon, or Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Arnica's pipeline-less security solution can improve your security posture, visit arnica.io or follow arnica.io on LinkedIn or Twitter. Until next time, keep secure and keep seeding AppSec.